0: Hello, and welcome to the GSV Ventures Podcast, where we will be discussing the age of digital learning that has been kickstarted by the 1.6 billion learners forced online by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world transitions from BC before coronavirus to AD after disease, an enormous catalyst has accelerated the opportunity of the future to today. Join industry leaders, educators, government officials, entrepreneurs, and investors as we explore the AD world. This episode, Close to the Action, insights from the Black Lives Matter movement, the civil rights movement, and the work of education transformation, is hosted by Jeff Livingston, CEO of Ed Solutions and co-founder of the Center for Education Market Dynamics. Our guests today include... Brendan Anderson, founder and CEO of Rahim.ai and 2019 TED Fellow. Anarima Bargava, president of Anthem of Us, former chief of the Educational Opportunities Section at the Civil Rights Division for the U.S. Department of Justice, former director of the Education Practice for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and senior advisor for Whiteboard Advisors. Sharhanda Bossier, Deputy Director of Education, Leaders of Color, and Ashiri Munson, Legislative Affairs Manager of the Illinois Network of Charter Schools, Chicago Community Organizer, and Activist.
1: I am Jeff Livingston. I am CEO of Ed Solutions and co-founder of the Center for Education Market Dynamics. Um, It is my honor to present the next panel and to moderate this panel, which is a very exciting one for me. I have an advantage over the rest of you who are listening in as much as I know why these are the right people to be engaged in this conversation, and many of you do not. So in the next couple of minutes, I hope to help you to understand um, who they are, why these are the people to talk about uh, this conversation, and um, I hope they will be joining me in just a second, on uh, on your screens so that we can get started uh, with our panel. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So what I hope to have happen today in, um, in the few minutes that we have here um, is that we will explore a continuing conversation that started, fascinatingly, a couple of weeks ago when five people whom I know and revere and love in this same virtual space had a fascinating conversation that began with Dr. Mahalia Hines questioning whether segregation um, was a good idea. And when I heard her say that, I went, wow, right? And I didn't go, wow, because I hadn't heard those ideas before. I I said, wow, because of where I was hearing those ideas. I usually hear them, you know, between the dressing and the mac and cheese at at dinner at my mother's house, because lots of people of her generation have decided that. But it it said to me that something new and different is happening, and I'm pleased to be a part of the conversation here. So my role here today is to be a stand-in for those of you in the audience, and to have the conversation with these amazing people that I want to have with them, and through me that you can have with them as well. And so in order to do that, let me spend just a minute more explaining how I come to this conversation, and then we will bring in um, the important people into the conversation. So as I had been thinking about this, I went back to um, a conversation more more than 30 years old now with a professor in college who was my favorite professor in college who in a conversation with me said um, that the movement for the full inclusion of black people into american life has at least two branches one of those is tree shakers dr martin kilson said and the other is jelly makers Dr. Kilson said that tree shakers are the people who grab a hold of the tree, shake it so hard that the fruit comes loose, and that the jelly makers were the people who came along, gathered up the fruit, and turned it into something substantive for the community. Now, he challenged me in that moment to remember that I was being trained to be a jelly maker, but that the minute the trees stopped getting shaked, I started starving that jelly making is a safer part of the movement than tree shaking, so I have a special responsibility to be supportive of the tree shakers, and that there is a risk that we jelly makers forget that it's the tree shakers who start the process, that we can't do what we do unless they do what they do. And so I very, very personally, as someone who was born to be a jelly maker, trained to be a jelly maker, worked hard to be a jelly maker, maker, get to speak to people who are shaking the trees, getting them to expand my thinking and remind me of what all of this is is about. Now, each of the people on this panel has been um, given not only permission, but begged to push me out of my comfort zone. And therefore, I hope to push you out of your comfort zone, too. And so let me get started by bringing them into the conversation so that you can come to know what I know, which is that this is exactly the right panel of people to be discussing this. Ashley Munson, can we start with you? I think of you as both a tree shaker and a jelly maker. So even in your very existence, you already challenged my assumption that I had to pick. Can you explain to our audience today uh, who you are and what you do and why I would say such a thing about you? Sure.
2: Uh, First, Jeff and the GSV team, so grateful to be here, along with my panel colleagues. Um, So I'm Ashley Munson. Um, My nine to five is I am a legislative affairs manager for the Illinois Network of Charter Schools. However, my five to nine, um, I am a community leader and activist. And so, um, Jeff, in describing me, I am both... Uh, a tree shaker and a jelly maker, because I call myself the liaison from the streets to the state house. I think it's important that both understand each other's roles and that we unite and move forward in a way that we haven't traditionally had to. Um, and because that's an important part of civic education and having policymakers create the policies that we're rattling the tree for. And it's important that the tree shakers understand the policymakers and their values and why they're doing the work. So I would distinguish myself as both. Um, And I hope to continue this fight and move forward to uh, make both parties understand one another.
1: Thank you, thank you so much. I understand that you also turned a tweet into a demonstration of several thousand people just a couple of weeks ago. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Sure.
2: Um, So I was in the midst of the rioting and looting that occurred after George Floyd. I was doing some research about the history of rioting and looting and, and protests. And so I made a tweet saying that wouldn't it be nice or cool, however I worded it, if we had a million man march in Chicago And that tweet turned into a lot of responses in which we had 11 days to plan this march that was on Juneteenth at Daily Plaza. So it went from a tweet to over 5,000 people, young and old, millennials, boomers, Gen Zers, coming out to support the Black heritage, but also willing to fight and stand for what they wanted to stand for, in addition to what are we doing and what's next? Uh, so I have the honor of leading that movement. And from that, uh, we have developed a nonprofit, which we can talk about later. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm honored to have led that movement uh, for our generation and to move
1: forward for our people as a whole. Thank you so much. Way to, way to shake the trees. I really appreciate it. Sharonda Bossier, I, like you, have lots of friends who are not Americans. and those friends who live outside the country enjoy pointing out the ways in which Americans are different in ways that don't help the rest of the planet. And in a a recent conversation, one of them pointed out to me that Americans are, in his estimation, more warlike, because no Americans have living memories of invading armies, marching past our front doors the way that lots of Europeans do, lots of Asians do, lots of Africans do, lots of, of Latin Americans do. But, but people from the United States don't know what it is to be invaded by armed men. And it occurs to me that some of us do know what that is like. Some of us have known what that is like for two generations in the same neighborhood and three generations, if you go back further. I believe you are one of these people. Could you explain to our audience um, why I would say that and introduce yourself in the way that you think best?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Sharonda Bassier. I'm the deputy director at EdLock Education Leaders of Color. Uh, and I am a native of Los Angeles, California. I grew up in the Watts section of the city. Uh, And I know very much what it's like to have an occupying force uh, into your neighborhood. I am 36, and that has happened in my lifetime twice in my city. Uh, Most recently, when the National Guard was deployed in response to some of the protests in uh, response to the killing of George Floyd, uh, and then also in 1992, when I was eight years old, right? And I remember distinctly what it was like to have armed police officers, armed National Guards troops in your, in our communities and to see them and to know that they actually weren't there to protect me or to protect my family. My mother was seven when uh, Watts uh, erupted in riots in 1965, right? And so for my family, it has just been a constant source of both pain and anguish to know that when we see troops roll in, Uh, that they are there to penalize us for demanding that this system respect and see our humanity, right? Um, And I think about what it was like for my grandparents who migrated here from Louisiana. My grandfather was the son of sharecroppers, right? Uh, And in 2016, I was in Baton Rouge uh, protesting the police killing of Alton Sterling, and that was one of the most heavily militarized police forces I ever encountered. And that was home. And my family was definitely worried about my physical safety when I was there. And so when people talk about Americans not knowing what it is like to have an armed occupying force in your communities, I say that you have not talked to poor Americans. You have not talked to poor black Americans. You have not talked to poor brown Americans because if you just asked us, we would tell you the number of times police, national guardsmen, sheriffs, deputies, etc., have swarmed and invaded our communities in the name of keeping the peace. Um, And it's really been about controlling us, our bodies, and our calls for liberation.
1: Thank you, Sharonda. Anurima, um, I am interested in this conversation as a part of my own process of growth. And one of the things I am doing is moving from what I pray has been a non-racist past instantiation of myself into an anti-racist, present and future. And we just heard the president of Davidson College say, if you're not an anti-racist, you're a racist. The way I understand that in my journey is that non-racism is about the condition of my heart, is about my intentions. Anti-racism is about focusing on consequences. And outcomes. I can have every inch. If I support a system that is racist, then I. If I do things that result, that result in racially disparate impacts, then I am behaving as a racist. It occurs to me that as a civil rights lawyer. lawyer Anu, you know something about this difference between intent and impact, and I wonder if you would discuss that a little bit as you also introduce yourself.
4: Sure, Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Uh, Let me just start by saying I come here in solidarity and from the work. I am not black and I have not lived the black experience. I am uh, someone who grew up on the south side of Chicago in public schools. And um, it's very much animated the reason why uh, I am a racial justice lawyer and have tried to spend my career working on addressing the ways in which intention and impact have shown up uh, in how our schools are segregated. And I don't just mean in, in, in where our children are sitting, but in the modern forms of segregation, like discipline, and how we treat and how we identify students with disabilities. Uh, I think about it in the ways in which our schools, our systems have been built and how we've invested in them, which is part of the conversation that was just had, but part of the conversation I'm sure we will have now, uh, where we have two-year-old metal detectors and 20-year-old books. And it's uh, it's very much in in, in terms of bringing um, a lens, the, the anti-racism lens of always interrogating. And I would say uh, that we are always interrogating, Jeff, both in intent and impact. It can't be one or the other. Um, there's a belief right now that if we have good intentions, if we're not really trying to be racist, then, then whatever happens in terms of those consequences um, are, are a natural flow. But I think the ways in which we think about, um, and, and we've moved away in the law in, in that way too, which is to say, if you're not doing it uh, in an intentionally racist way, that um, somehow or another, it's not something you need to be accountable for or to to change. And, um, and, and I think what we have to look at is not only what our intentions are, but what our impacts are. And that happens um, all the time. And whether or not we are, we are not just um, playing on the margins, but are we designing, designing the system of power and investment differently uh, to lift up and to support black and brown children in America? So uh, I think we have to do that um, in how we embed and not just in in how we treat
1: on the the back end um, what we're doing in terms of our schooling. Thank you so much, Anu. Um, Brandon, um, just a few minutes ago, I got the announcement of the next cohort of tech entrepreneurs that Fast Forward in San Francisco is celebrating. And it occurs to me that you and I met when you were being celebrated. Uh, by that same organization for your work. And it feels like it was a long time ago because you have been so important to my, my own thinking. And I say that because you challenge me a lot. Um, you forced me to see the world through your eyes and I have thanked you for that many times and I do so again publicly um, here. I have heard you describe yourself, Brandon, as a Black queer abolitionist. I think I know what Black means. I think I'm coming to understand what queer means. I'm not at all sure I know what abolitionist means in this context, though I do suspect. Would you please uh, enlighten me as to what those labels mean, if you still use them, and tell our audience why it is that you have come to this conversation as well?
5: Yeah. Uh, first, I am super honored to be in the presence of so many beautiful people. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. It's already the best panel I've, I've been a part of or have listened to. Um, you're right, I am a Black queer abolitionist. Uh, I uh, am a Black queer abolitionist, and I'm also the founder of Raheem. And uh, Rahim is an Oakland-based national nonprofit uh, and the independent service for reporting police violence in the United States. Uh, when you report to Rahim, we connect you to a free lawyer, we file a complaint against the police officer, and then we use your reports to lobby for uh, policies that shrink the role of police and invest in Black people. We are a group of uh, talented, passionate Uh, mostly black organizers, data scientists, and product designers working to end police terror against black people. Uh, I was born and raised in Oklahoma uh, during the 1980s crack epidemic and the 1990s global HIV pandemic. Uh, My great-grandfather was the single only African-American surgeon uh, and then, uh, during the 1921 race massacre, when hundreds of black people uh, were burned alive and killed by white terrorists, uh, and uh, his son, my grandfather, organized uh, in the early 1960s and 70s as the only, uh, as the first African American man to own a nightclub in Oklahoma City. Police harassed him and his customers, so much so that he needed to shut his doors. Uh, He turned to alcoholism. I met him for the very first time when I was 16 years old. He died when I was 19. I was born to his daughter, my mother, who in 1994 went to prison and lost her rights, uh, her parenting rights to me because a police officer planted crack paraphernalia. My mother had never smoked crack in her life. She had become addicted to crack cocaine while in prison, lost her parenting rights to me. I met her for the first time when I was 15 years old. That same year, I fell in love to a tall, skinny, big-headed Black boy who I had first met in third grade English class. We had been through just about everything together, from uh, grade school, junior high school, and high school. Uh, We lived uh, homeless for two years, and I fell in love with him in an abandoned house next to a used car dealership. Uh, And in 2006, he asked me to marry him, which was quite frankly, one of the most beautiful days of my life. Uh, He, Moved on to become a painter a year later, and I was in the Army for five years. In 2007, uh, my life partner, fiance, and very best friend was shot and killed by Oklahoma City Police Department during a routine traffic stop. His love was radical, unapologetic, and it changed my life. Hearing about uh, those lived experiences, starting first at my great-grandfather, then my grandfather, my mother, and then uh, my life partner, my fiance, really, I hope, illuminates the shaping of my lived experiences and, uh, and, and what it means for me to be Black. What it means for me to be queer is that when I told my first line supervisor about my partner being shot and I wanted to visit him, I was kicked out of the U.S. Army because I was queer because I liked men. I was kicked out of the army, and so I am unabashedly, you know, queer. We can talk a little bit about what that queerness means, but what's most interested in uh, that I'm most interesting in complicating is what abolition means. And abolition can be both, and is for me, both a strategy and an outcome. Uh, and so I wanna live in a world that does not have police uh, at all, period. And the, the strategy with which uh, I engage my colleagues and friends uh, and, and the world with is a strategy of abolition. I'm happy to be here and really looking forward to exploring a lot of that.
1: Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank thank you for sharing all of that with us. So now our audience understands why you are the people I want to talk to. Here, I'd love to lean in on this policing policing issue first, because when I hear or even when I say abolish the police, I mean like. Secretary Duncan said a few minutes ago, reorganize, redirect resources, reconceive of policing. Brandon wants to live in a world without police. Let's bring this into the school system as we think about this. I took a sabbatical during a career change a couple of years ago. And while I was in Latin America, I looked up at a CNN and Espanol screen and saw a skinny young African-American girl being thrown across a classroom by a uniformed police officer in South Carolina. Now that touched me deeply for a couple of reasons. One is that I have been both a student and a teacher in that very room. In fact, the video was taken by the daughter of a classmate of mine. And I have a niece who was two doors away in her math class at the time. And I remember going through a lot of emotions. I thought, oh my god, how dare he do that? And I thought, what would happen if that were my niece? And I immediately called my mother and said to her, find out who needs bail money so i can send some because where i come from if especially a young female member of a of of a family is treated that way several of the male members of her family are immediately going to respond in ways that are that are violent when she told me that no such thing had happened i knew immediately what the world found out later which was that she had been orphaned and lived in a group home and that made her especially vulnerable. But what I did not think of until later that's related to this conversation is why the hell was there a police officer in that school in the first place? Why, you know, Anu, why are there more more schools with police in them than there are with nurses in them? Why is that something we have decided to bring from the outside society into the schools? And should we first abolish policing in school buildings? What do you think, on so
4: that? Let me just um, thank you for, for talking about what happened in South Carolina, which is something we have seen in schools across the nation and um you know being someone who spent my my time a lot of my time trying to bring those cases and 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 put some pressure from the from the legal end um uh, you know seeing 5 year olds who are handcuffed and shackled for having a temper tantrum a little girl in Florida um I mean I could I could go on with with so many of those instances and places where it's a matter of routine right where uh where 12 13 14 Kids are arrested per day for doing things like wearing the wrong color socks or or, or rolling their eyes in the wrong way, uh, disrespect, insubordination, things that are 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 subjective. And so we've gotten to a place where what you know, when I was growing up in, in in Chicago, we remember who was suspended and expelled, and you remember what they were suspended and expelled for. And now we're in a situation where even in places like Texas, 60% of students in seventh through twelfth grade have been suspended or expelled at least once. So it's not just it's it's the ways in which we have created a system um, where uh, the goal is not to keep students in class, but it's an exclusionary practice of 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 setting up a system in which um, we are perpetuating the fact that we have one in, in three black men who are going to go to prison and not necessarily to college. Right? That that is a higher percentage. Um, and um, and so what I would say is there's a reason why um, 14 million students in America. Uh, go to schools where there are cops, but there are no nurses, psychologists, counselors, or social workers. Um, And um, that's because of the ways in which we've thought about, uh, you know, who are good kids and bad kids, um, how we thought about moving from a a, a system of zero tolerance and saying, well, we're not doing that anymore, but instead um, we're just going to police everything that happens within the, the school building and it's, it's in relation to what we, we want to say to our kids about their relationship to authority and their own agency and trauma. And um, you know, part of what I've spent my time doing in the last couple of years is what, what structures are leading up to the moments of violence and then how do we actually think about how do we transform differently from those moments of violence? And I think back to Ferguson where, you know, I talked to so many little kids who said to me, they assassinated my hero. And they weren't talking about Michael Brown. They were talking about the African-American superintendent who had been pushed out by an all-white school board four months before Michael Brown. And what it means to not have anyone who they can look to who is um, in those spaces as someone who's supporting their education and supporting an education where in Ferguson Middle School, you don't have 50 students who are arrested per year so that they can get help, right? That's right. Um, so that's, that's where I think, I think we have set up the system this way And it's time for us to set up a system a very different way, back to the question of what's our intent and how we design um, the spaces that we are educating our children in.
1: Thank you, Anu. Let me invite all of you on the panel to unmute. The taking turns part of the the program is over. We're going to have an open conversation. And I, I want to lean into this more around this notion of policing and schooling because the physical presence of the cop is not the only way that the culture of incarceration comes into the school, right? Um, Some of you on the panel have personal experience of the impact of incarceration on your families, of um, the war on drugs, and the way it was conducted on your families. And students bring that to school, too. And that also uh, incorporates itself in there. Would anyone like to uh, address that? Or anything else that came up as you have thought about this?
3: you sort of started your question asking, you know, do we start with sort of defunding or abolishing police in schools? And I think we can do both, right? I think it's a both and, and I think we've seen in places like Los Angeles and Minneapolis, where activists have said, you know, we are going to focus both on city police forces, but also the police forces or the divisions of the police force, right, that are focused on schools. And, um, And to your question about sort of the 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 culture of policing and how that enters schools, you know, I sort of got my start as an organizer and activist in um, high school. And my grandfather, who was like, really about like, okay, girl, you gonna do your thing. Like, I I recognize this, right? Um, We walked out one day and across the street from my high school was a sheriff's station, right? And I remember the biggest fear being not that I was going to get in trouble with my teachers who liked me and were permissive in ways they probably shouldn't have been around my activism on campus, right? But that a sheriff's officer or deputy would would pick me up for truancy, right? And that being picked up for truancy would be the thing that would, again, mean my family would have to engage with law enforcement, and with the courts, right? And so if you think about what it says to Honorima's point about agency, right? We're talking about who is teaching us, what's happening in our classrooms, what curriculum we have access to, et cetera. And we're like, we're going to walk out to make a statement, right? And we're going to walk around the block because we don't really know where else to go, right? We're high schoolers. Um, but if you think about the fact that in trying to exercise my agency and trying to say, here's my voice and here's what matters to me. The thing that I am most worried about is that I'm gonna be picked up by a sheriff's deputy, right? What does that do to me? And what is that? what impact does that have on how I think about my role and my voice both in my school community and in my broader community, right? And so I was very clear that my actions had consequences, not just for me, but for my entire family, right? If I were to be picked up for truancy.
4: And the ridiculousness that we suspend people for truancy or arrest people for truancy—just, just, just that as a very notion is just ridiculous oh. to begin with. Sorry, Ashley.
2: No, 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 totally fine. I, I totally agree with both. Uh, what they said. But I think one thing that comes to mind for me is thinking about this movement in relation to what we're talking about, right? And so young people have been an integral part of this movement that's going on. And so schools have to watch, learn, and pay attention to this because it's most school-aged children who are leading this movement now or being a part of the protests and stuff like that. And in that, you have many school districts and educators that are saying, yeah, I'm, I'm pro-Black Lives or Black Lives Matter. But then we have to assess, are we really, are, do we really care about, about Black lives, right? So we have to evaluate the policies that affect directly Black and Brown students in these schools, um, why do we say Black Lives Matter when we complicitly uh, take part in student failure? Um, Are we taking part in helping our Black and Brown students or do we not care, Uh, are we just more, Focus on the money we get from them attending the school versus their successfulness and how they succeed in life. So I think it's a it's a it's a very important conversation, but I think it's a time for schools to really evaluate. Are they really in support of lifting up and elevating black and brown students or are we just doing the bare minimum, if that
1: That's important, um, Brandon, um I did something a few weeks ago on Facebook, I'm of the Facebook generation even though you and I interact on Instagram more. Um, I posted something in a particular way just to get a response. I said, um, Black men, when was the first time a police officer pulled a gun on you? And I posted that up and invited the Black men in, in my life to respond. So First off, immediately, Black women and Brown women and Brown men said, hey, it doesn't just happen to you. And I'm like, absolutely right. But I want to see what these answers are. And in the course of about 48 hours, hundreds, hundreds of people responded, including more than one Obama cabinet official, including more than one college president, including more than one senior leader at um, a philanthropy, including more than one senior executive at um, companies that are regular sponsors of the ASU GSB summit. One of the things that was really important to me is that I have known most of these people for decades, and I had never heard those stories. I knew they were there just because I knew they were there but I had never heard the stories, not even the two that were posted by my younger brothers. Right? So not only did we have this common experience of trauma, we also commonly dealt with it alone because we hadn't talked about it because we were raised to only bring good things into our homes, right? We were raised not to bring extra problems into our homes, and certainly not to do the kinds of things that might have caused our parents to want to do something about it and therefore end up interacting with the police in ways that were dangerous. Can you talk about that trauma, the fact of that trauma, specifically around Black people, all of us, those of us who are like me and comfortably a part of communities like GSV, but also those those of us that we see on the streets <clears throat> protesting directly. Can you talk about the, the how that trauma should inform what we're trying to, to think about here today?
5: Yeah. First of all, I'm really sorry to hear about uh, anyone who has a gun pulled on them. Uh, I also really appreciate the folk who jumped into the comments, who said what I know you know is that Black women for days have been harassed both sexually up and down uh, street corners and homes during domestic violence disputes. Their answers and calls for help have been ignored. Um, And oftentimes uh, the real gag is that both Black men and men in general can continue to perpetuate systems of oppression and violence against Black women And Black women are always uh, the people who are on the front lines when it comes to fighting for this movement around police accountability, uh, even with the common statistic of Black men are most likely to be killed by police than any other group of people. So first of all, let's give a shout out to Black women who are always in this movement alongside this work. Um, And speaking of Black women, um, I want to tell you, I want to answer that question, by the way, my sister, um, who has my little sister, my younger sister, who has been such an incredible inspiration to me in my life. Um, she was, my little sister was 28 years old and she was diagnosed with breast cancer two years ago. And when I found out I organized friends to be at her chemo session so she wouldn't be alone during those sessions. I left my job for a few weeks to visit her. I live in Oakland. I visited her in New York to help her recover, uh, her recover from her surgery. And I paid as much of her medical bills as I could afford. She's cancer-free now, but a few months ago, she called me. And she was like, uh, hey, I'm angry with you because uh, you did not drop everything you had going on in your life. You did not quit your job, break your lease, and put my relationship on hold, and move to New York to be with her until she no longer needed me. And that was a super hard pill for me to swallow. And so, of course, I asked a friend for advice. And I'll never forget what they asked me. Uh, Is that reasonable? And I think about that question a lot, like as an abolitionist, I'm reminded of of how often I'm asked this question. Is it reasonable to live in a world with no police? And when I asked my sister why she wanted to, why she waited so long to tell me all of this, her response was that she had lived a life that required her as a Black woman to avoid taking up too much space in any room, which meant asking for what she thought others found reasonable. And so at first I blamed her for asking so much of me, but I've recently come around. Uh, I'm glad that my little sister stopped asking me for what was reasonable and started asking me for what she needed to heal. The U.S. spends $100 billion in policing and we don't have the money to build quality, affordable housing for millions of people tonight who will go home, uh, who will not go home to a warm bed. Uh, like Anu said, 14 million students are in schools with police, but don't got no counselor, nurse, psychologist, or social worker. One in 1,000 black men is killed by police every year, basically making it the sixth leading cause of death for young black men in America, right behind cancer. I don't know if defunding the police is reasonable, but I know it's what we need to heal. And we cannot continue using police to solve symptoms of poverty, crippling education system, white supremacy, and anti-Blackness. So when I think about this question regarding the way with which we show up in our trauma, I'm reminded of the way my sister felt in showing up in this space and in, in ensuring that she didn't take up too much of the space and say what it is that she needed. But instead, she said what she thought would be reasonable. For the men in her life, for the people in her life. And I feel like all of us are living under a system that is asking us to be okay with 25,000 families owning 40% of world wealth while you have a regular person who lives homeless on your street corner. What police are asking us to do in their law enforcement, let's be clear about what laws they are enforcing, they are oftentimes, if not completely, the personal bodyguards of those 25,000 families who own 40% of global wealth while we are still living in a world full of poverty. If we can create a world that can produce so many damn billionaires, there is no way we cannot end poverty. It's not a question of can we, it is a question of will we. And I think police, Reinforce the ideology that we should be OK with living in that world, that we should be OK with, with, with so few people having so much more than us. We should be OK with 14 million students going to school who have no social worker but have police. We should be OK with George Floyd dying from a police officer who was sworn to protect him and living through the deadliest virus known in modern history. Right? That police let us know we should be all right with being abused by them. And so when I when you tell me about the stories about a police officer pulling a gun on your on, on friends of yours who are black men, I'm reminded of the way with which police oftentimes can get the job done without ever needing to pull their gun. And that is the, that 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 there lies the issue, is that the constraint exists because police exist. And even if you don't have a gun pulled on you by a police officer, doesn't mean you're not impacted just the same way Sharonda said, by the way with which they might pull a gun on you. And you can rearrange your entire lifestyle around the living existence of an occupying force like police. And so that's why I say abolition has to end. Uh, I mean, uh, police has to end. And the real issue is that we continue to solve our problems with violence. And the United States government has been doing that both domestically and abroad. And it is teaching our children to respond in violence through our conflict. And if we want to teach children, ourselves, our children's children, and our children's grandchildren, it will require us to use different means of addressing our social conflict that does not include violence. And for that sake, if only for that sake, is the sole, if that was the only reason you wanted to abolish police, was to teach children that addressing social conflict doesn't have to rely on a badge and a gun or other violence, both domestically and foreign, it is, it, it is still a, a very good reason to abolish the police.
1: As as always, you, all of you, are expanding my thinking, which is exactly what I wanted to happen to hear today. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, on the on the this abolition concept, right, the dismantling of systems and structures, let's take it back to school, OK? I'm speaking to you all today from the village of Harlem in the city of New York, where If you are both black and poor, the chances of your ever being a college graduate is a single digit number. I've seen a lot of different single digit numbers, but I've seen, but they're all single digit numbers. So let's pretend for a moment that it's 10%. Should I think? that school systems like this one in the city that I love are designed to promote the success of all of its students and fail 90% of the time, or that they are designed to reinforce class and racial hierarchies and get that right 90% of the time? What if we took this concept of abolition with us into our discussion of schools? What might that look like? What might we, you know, what might we dare to think if we thought that the way we do school does not have to be the way we do school? Any ideas? I know I know you and I have spoken in other circumstances about countries that only have public system, only public schools. What might that look like? I think it
4: would look like a very different investment in those public schools, particularly if we started to de-silo how it is that we think about education. Because what's happening in our education systems has everything to do with what's happening in housing, what's happening in healthcare, what's happening in in, in terms of opportunity communities more broadly. But also, it has to do with the fact that we're, you know, to go back to the the, the, the legal moment for a second, we're not just separate and we're separate and unequal. So we are at worse than Plessy, right? So this debate that we've had for a really long time about whether we should be separate or we should be equal, we're not doing either. So, so it tells you something about where it is that we are in this trajectory. Jeff, if I may, I just want to say something about your post, um, because the thing that struck me about it, and so you're this question too, is that in 10 years, if, we ask, if you ask that same question, you might have people who said the answer is when I was five and I was in school, mm-hmm. right, um, of when a gun was first pulled on me. And, um, and it also struck me that we don't realize the ways in which Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Mike Brown, George Floyd, what it means for children to be watching the very things that we can't even put into words what our trauma is, what it means for our children to be watching that too. Right. And I think and and, and and what it means for their children to be part of those moments. Right. And so I think there's a way in which um how we actually create systems that can address the trauma that children are experiencing so that um school is a place not only of education, but of education and and, and a place that does not have the kind of violence they might be seeing elsewhere. Those are the kinds of things we should be thinking about, how we how we structure it. But I certainly think that at this point we keep moving towards education for a few, and really good education for a few, um, and we debate at nauseam like what it is that we should do about affirmative action when we don't think about the fact that selective colleges, to, to your point, it's in the single digits in Harlem, but selective colleges are only five percent of our colleges anyway right and so what what's the term of debate that we're having and 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 how narrow have we gotten in terms of whether or not we're actually having a conversation that's about all of our kids or even close to a a high percentage or majority
1: of those kids so i'll leave it at that i appreciate that um i'd like also to, to to take the conversation in the direction of what we can do and more importantly what the audience who's listening to us and commenting in the questions can do um, about that, and maybe even take it into the area of funding, right? Um, We know that the public school system of the United States is already majority non-white. We also know that venture capital goes to a ridiculously tiny uh, proportion of non-white and or female uh, founders. Sadly, similar things are true of philanthropy. And institutions led by African-Americans, by Latinas, by other people of color, also vastly disproportionately get a tiny, tiny fraction of the share of funding. So there's a a world in which we need to think about, and the people listening to us should think about, whose ideas get to be capitalized. We talk about um, achievement gaps and resource gaps. What about the innovation gap, the gap between the innovators and the innovated upon, and what that means there, too? So the people listening to us, the people who are a part of this broad GSV community of which I am proud to be a member, are the kinds of people who get to be involved in those conversations. What do you all want them to hear from you about what their responsibility is if they want to really believe in the possibility of this moment and of this conversation?
2: I would I would say a few things. I would say one. I would say put your money where your mouth is. I think we have we're good with word service. We're there good with is. we support people and movements, but we lack uh, putting action behind those words. And so whether that's investing in communities, because honestly, um, what we were talking about uh, education, it starts with the community. So if we start on a local level by investing back in those black and brown businesses, investing in community efforts. It's no reason when we talk about policing, uh, sometimes I wonder what if, someone called the grandma on the block versus the police officer on Little Johnny that was acting up. It needs to go back to community efforts before we talk about it on a greater scale. So even in that, having corporations invest in Black business, invest in education, invest in people and organizers that are actually on the ground doing the work and know the real problems. And I think that's where you start. I think (laughs) a a second step I would offer is having those different um, those difficult conversations. I think a lot of us are used to the easy you know non-tentious conversations but in reality nothing gets accomplished when everyone agrees um and in that part I think sometimes we focus on the disagreements and not where we can unite and so if we can focus like I don't agree I may agree that charter schools are better um um how do you pronounce the name I'm a I, I, Honorima. Honorima. I'm Marima. Sorry about that. And she says public schools. And I and I agree with her. Public schools should be funded fully. And then we wouldn't even be here. Right. Um, But if we don't if we don't agree on those, we can focus on that. Our people need to move forward. And that's at base. So whether that means investing, having these conversations and coming to a conclusion where we can move forward, that needs to happen. So put your money where your mouth is and have these difficult conversations because it's not personal. It's about business and moving us forward as a people.
3: Yeah, I'd like to build on put your money where your mouth is, you know, and the previous panel folks talked about reparations and Penny said, you know, in a way that works. And I think you know, we often as outsiders are thinking about that we think we know the way that works, right? And we never ask the folks who are actually on the ground. When I think about the investments that I see made in, in entrepreneurs of color, they often come with so many strings and so many additional hoops around, you know, you've got to participate in this program, you got to get this mentor, you have to report on this timeline, right? And we don't trust people, we don't trust entrepreneurs, we don't trust innovators of color to do what they know best, right? So, so that's one thing. I think um you know the other thing is I would I would say to ground yourself in research and theory, right? We it as part of this conversation have been talking about the last few weeks as if this is new, it is not new, as my grandmother would say, right? Ain't nothing new under the sun, baby. And so people have been here before and there are lessons that people have learned and there are people who have been researchers and thinkers and theorists who have charted what they, can, what they think is a path forward. And I think that we should be thinking about that. We should be grounding ourselves in that, especially for this group of folks, right? We love to talk data, 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 right? The data exists about where the problems are and there are projections about how we can solve that, right? And what A path forward looks like. And then lastly, I will say, change the things you are reading, change the people you are listening to. And if you're on social media, right, change who you are following. Um, I think that reading, for instance, Ta-Nehisi quotes this piece in the Atlantic around reparations is a good place to start as the conversation around reparations has, you know, sort of resurfaced. Um, I think there's a there's a sporkful, if you're a podcast person, a sporkful podcast on when white people say plantation, uh, which is all about sort of how we think differently about, uh, you know, the South and how we think about plantations and how, like, different words can conjure different things for us, right, as people. Um, I think that is a really good thing to listen to if you're just like, what are people talking about? And it's mostly about food and beverage, actually, right? So whatever your interest, there are places for you to access conversations around race and allyship and and what that means and what that looks like. And then I would say, you know, if you aren't following people who are Black policymakers and Black thinkers like the African American Policy Forum, as an example, right, or Clint Smith III, right, if you're not following those folks, then I think you're missing out on an opportunity to get a sense of what new theory and research is emerging from folks who are in the work right now. And so those would be sort of my additional pushes.
4: I don't want to go after Brandon, so I'm going to jump in here um, <laughs> and say we're, we're in the middle of an assault rifle attack on our children, right? And that means, um, you know, 17% of kids don't have access to Internet. Probably half of those who are free, free and reduced price lunch, the 21 million kids who are free and reduced price lunch, they don't have an ability to access you know, the basic things like food and safety to survive um, in the midst of COVID and in, in what's happened in the last um, six weeks. And um, and then and then we have this question of, like, how are they going to be educated uh, in this moment? And I think there's a lot of ways in which, um, you know, put, putting out this question of, like, like, what do we do? I'm not asking people, I, I mean, I am asking people to try and make sure that our kids actually have the resources um, to be able to access education. So let's just start there, but let's not stop there, which is that um, the ways in which you actually see transformation is not to have a DEI person join or a DEI task force to give you a checklist of what it is that you're going to do for the next six weeks of your life, but really to think again, about what's the intent and impact of how you're designing the ways in which you are engaged in this world, and how do you actually change then um, what it is that we need, what future do we want our children to be educated for, um, and what are we investing in for them to be able to have a place in? So if we invest in prisons, there's going to be a place in prison for them. If we invest in education, there's going to be a place in education for them. And so that's where I would say um, the, 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 the focus should be, is not just on what it is that we can donate in this moment. Although, and I would say like, as much as everybody wants to give to a lot of the movement work, which I think is so extraordinarily important, I also think investing in communities right now so that they can survive the next six months is critically important too. Um, and so, uh, and, then, and then really think about what it means to look at your own house and, and, and transform um, how you're doing your work, not just on the sidelines, but in action accountability and what you design, how you do, um, what you do every day. So I will leave it to Brandon because I know it'll take us on. Brandon. Uh, uh, I
5: I think that right now there are are a few things that people in the audience can do. Uh, When having the conversation about defunding police, there are are really five strategies that, uh, there are five other places we could be spending that money Again, we have $100 to $125 billion on an annual basis being used to fund police in this country. Uh, And at Rahim, we get a lot of people who report to us experiences that they have had with police that turn negative and violent. But if they had the things uh, invested in previously, we would have prevented any engagement with the police. And some of those things, for instance, are we had one person who, uh, who reported to us they were harassed for using the bathroom outside. Another couple was uh, cited and assaulted for disturbing the peace. They argued outside, uh, and then these are all things that I do. I, uh, you know, I certainly use the restroom, but I have a house to use my restroom. Uh, I certainly argue with my partner, but I have a house to argue with my partner in. And so instead of funding police officers in better training them on how to be compassionate to people living homeless, build quality, affordable housing for people who live homeless. Uh, Instead of the 80% of all calls that go to police departments across the country responding to what they describe as 5150s, which are people struggling with mental health issues, these are jobs that police officers themselves don't want to do. Divert those calls to a mobile rapid response team of medical practitioners who know exactly how to treat people struggling with mental health. When we ask the question around defunding police, it's crazy because we've been defunding education for years. right? I'll say it again, 14 million students go to school with police officers but don't have a nurse. Fund nurses, fund psychologists, fund social workers. When it comes to social workers, Police should not be arriving on the scene. is the fourth issue. Police should not be arriving on the scene when a person is calling for domestic violence disputes. Why? Because 40% of all the reported domestic violence disputes involve a police officer. Why? Because if you spend most of your nine to five engaging with the community with the use of a badge and a gun as the only tools to solve your conflict, wielding power is the only way with which you know how to solve that conflict in your own home. So don't send police officers to solve those conflicts, send social workers who are trained to support people in those moments. And lastly, when it comes to uh, transportation, first of all, make it free. All right, gentrification is rapid, uh, and it is growing throughout this country, and if we're pushing people out of the city they help to build, then charging them more city, uh, then the city charging them more money to come back in the city, that ain't it. So Uh, In in the place that you live in, Jeff, New York City spent $250 million on armed police officers to uh, to manage the subway uh, to avoid losing $200 million in fare evasion. The number one reason for fare evasion is not being poor. It's that the damn machines are broken. People jump the gate because they got to get to work. So fix the machines. Don't put armed security guards manning the subway. Those are five ways and areas with which we could invest in communities that don't involve having police. And lastly, I'll leave and say that I think that uh, if you want to donate to Raheem, it's www.raheem.org, and I would uh, we help people um, abused by police. And uh, shoot, you know, uh, we'd really
1: appreciate the support. Thank you, thank you all so much for. Allowing us to pack an eight hour conversation into fifty minutes, um, thank you for expanding my thinking and um, thank those in the audience who have stayed with us through this conversation, which i I believe will be ongoing. I think it's important that we continue to talk that the first panel should respond to this panel at some point that we should we should talk about how um People who are not white and people who are white talk together about the same issues. And um, all of you in the GSB community, especially Deborah and Michael and the people at GSB, thank you for making room for this conversation, which is important. And thank you all for participating today and in future virtual conferences. Um, My friends, Sharonda, Anurima, Ashley, Brandon, thank you so much for being all that I knew you could be. Thank you all so much. Um see you very soon.
0: This episode of the GSV Ventures Podcast, insights from the Black Lives Matter movement, the Civil Rights Movement, and the work of education transformation, is brought to you by the 2020 ASU GSV Summit, September 29th through October 1st at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California. The ASU GSV Summit Wishes to thank our sponsor partners, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Google, and Strada Education Network. Please visit ASUGSVSummit.com for more information.